the Simply Focus with Elvis Chani and Dominic Gouda for life and joy and ease. Welcome back to the Simply Focus podcast, the Good Life Approach, your podcast for life and joy and ease. My name is Dominic Gouda. And I'm Elfie Chani. Hi there. We have the honor today to have Bill O'Hanlon with us today. Hi, Bill. Hi. Bill, you're in Santa Fe right now, right? Right. That's where we met. Yes, that's where we met a few months ago and had a lovely lunch with you. And I still remember how energized we were the whole day after meeting you. So thank you very much for your time and for all the good energy you spread. Thank you. I made a business some years ago when I had to make a legal business. And I called myself the chief energy officer because I always wanted to be a CEO. Yeah. But I didn't want to be a chief executive officer. So I'm the chief energy officer. And I try and spread good energy all over the world. In the land of possibility. In the land of possibility. That's where I live and that's where you live too, I know. And you could also be called the Chief Generosity Officer. When we met you, we got a book from you, we got songs from you, you invited us for pizza. It was just so great to spend time with you and really not only get to know you and learn about your stories about Ericsson, for example, or stories of your life or your passion for music and going to Nashville and recording and things like that, but also really enjoyed how you focused on BBM and were aware of what's going on. It was like having Bibian's grandfather with us in Santa Fe. She's a charmer. She's a deep charmer, I'll tell you. She's a combination of you two, but a little better, I hate to say. Yeah, the updated version. <laughs> <laughs> we can live yeah. with it. Thank you. The best of both of you with a little extra. She's a charmer. So, Bill, you're an author of more than 30 published books. You're a psychotherapist and hypnotherapist. You're a coach, a speaker, and you even were featured with one of your books on Oprah's show and the book was Do One Thing Different. Yes. And you're with Solution Focus from the very beginning. You were trained by Milton Erickson. Not only trained, you were his gardener. Yes. And <laughs> we love this story. So what fascinates you with Solution Focus? Well, the first time I got this idea of finding what's working and the strengths in people and the solutions was when Mel Nerickson told me what's now a famous story, but wasn't at the time, about a woman he treated who was depressed and suicidal and she'd had an illness, had a lot of money, lived in a big house all alone, was in a wheelchair, and she barely went out of the house. And so Dr. Erickson was asked if he could see her when he was on a trip to her town. And he looked all around her house. It looked depressing. She kept all the curtains drawn. She was embarrassed about being in a wheelchair. And she had a great passion for growing plants. She told him she used to be very active in her community because she belonged to a church and she would do charitable goods because she inherited a lot of money. And he suggested she grow African violet plants, repot them into a gift pot and take them to people in her congregation when anybody was ill or death had occurred in the family or a happy event where someone got engaged or it was a birthday or or a graduation or something. And she hired a man to go and take her around. And she became one of the most popular people in life, lived 11 more years, a very meaningful life and a very happy life, even though she had been depressed and suicidal. When you told me that story, I was just astonished because I was thinking, they are not teaching me this in my psychotherapy training. They're teaching me to ask her about her biochemical disorder and her past and her family history of depression and what her distorted 
his thoughts were. And I said to him, I want to work that way. I want to work that African violet way. That was the plants he had her grow. And he said, I looked all around her life. Everything looked depressing except those plants. Mm. And I decided it would be easier to grow the African violet parts of her life than to weed out the depression. And for me, that was the moment that everything changed. Mm. My focus changed to what works instead of what's wrong. Mm. And right after that, that was in 1977, I studied with Dr. Erickson and I was his gardener. I became acquainted only by correspondence with Steve DeShazer, mm. who had written the most articles about Milton Erickson that were published before 1980. And I had read all his articles. He was a really good writer. And I started to correspond with him because I was fascinated with Dr. Erickson's work, trying to understand the confusing nature of Dr. Erickson's work. And he and I developed a correspondent friendship. That was in the days when we wrote letters rather than emails. Mm -hmm. And we would write five or six page letters back and forth, exchanging ideas about what later became in the early 1980s, solution focused. And I called my variation solution oriented therapy. And we shared a lot of ideas together and then articulated them a little differently. So for me, I've lived in this not only land of possibility, but the land of strengths, solutions, and resources. Mm. And that was the common thing we took from Dr. Erickson. Dr. Erickson thought that people's problems were resources. He thought that there were resources within them and around them. And this African violet lady, he used her religion as a resource. He used her church as a resource. He used his community as a resource. And as well as her inner love for plants and the financial resources he had. He, no matter what was going on with people, he always focused on where are the resources, inner or outer resources. And that made me a resource-oriented therapist. But Steve DeShazer and I started to articulate this other way of making methods out of Erickson's bias towards people's strengths and solutions and abilities and against diagnosis, pathology, and what's wrong with people. Mm -hmm. So I've lived in this land for a long time. Mm, wow. What differences did that make for you living in this land? Well, at first, it was alienating because almost everybody else around me lived in the land of pathology and what's wrong with people and that they were damaged. And so for me, the initial response I had was, oh, I'm weird and different from everyone. And then the next thing is I got angry. And I was a peaceful hippie. I had a hair down to my waist. I was a hippie boy. I was very peace and love. But I felt violent sometimes with my colleagues and my teachers in mm -hmm. psychotherapy because they would say things like, no one really wants to change. The only person that wants to change is a wet baby, you know, when they have wet nappies. Mm. And I would just get so angry. I had been depressed when I was younger and I wanted to change. I didn't know how to change, but I wanted to change. And I thought it was insulting. And then occasionally they would talk about their clients or patients in such a disrespectful or discouraging way. Mm. You know, this person loves to be miserable, they would say, and I would want to leap across the room and strangle it. I was so upset. Mm. So I didn't take an AK-47 and come into work and mow everyone down. I didn't think that would be helpful. <laughs> But I used my anger to fuel going out and teaching. So I started to teach workshops right after I got out of my psychotherapy training. I was very young and I was also very shy, but the anger that I felt gave me the fuel to get over my shyness and to overcome and be bigger than my shyness mm. and my fear of speaking. And then 10 years later, I used that same passion, anger, to write my first 10 or 12 books. Then I got less angry because <laughs> I found colleagues like Steve DeShazer and Sue Berg and Michelle Wiener Davis. And 
and Scott Miller and a bunch of people who are also, oh, now I'm not alone. Everyone else is doing this and we're writing books. And now we've got students and people who are convinced. And I went to Finland and they have 3,000 people in their solution-focused organization in Finland where this was something that Steve DeShazer and I made up in the 1970s. And it's real in the world. And then I relaxed a little more and I got less angry. Then I did things for the joy of it. What a beautiful change from using the anger to make a difference in the world and then transform it to joy. I love that story. Yeah, thank you. You said you called your version solution-oriented work or solution orientation. What is your way of describing that? Well, to me, the solution-focused, I didn't love. Steve had a particular kind of brain. His brain was very focused. Sometimes when people would ask him a question about pathology or problems, he would dismiss the question. And to me, I thought, you know, this is where they live. If I were talking to a client, I would never dismiss their questions or concerns. I'd see Steve in a workshop and someone say, in Solution Focus, how do you handle people who've been sexually abused? And he said, we never see anyone who was sexually abused. Mm. And I understood that was the Zen master answer, you know, because he was like hitting them on the head with a stick saying, we don't orient to people as problems. And we don't orient to their problems. We only see people. If he'd answered the question more completely, it would have been so dismissive and the way people experienced it, he would say, we only focus on where they are now and what they want. Yes, they have a background, but that doesn't determine their lives. If he'd answered more completely, it would have been, to me, more inclusive and more respectful. But he was so pure in his Zen-like understanding and his Zen-like mission. He had a mission, too, to spread these ideas. And I thought, mine is not so dismissive of the past or of pathology. I'm happy to hear about people's sexual abuse and their problems and their history. I don't encourage it, but if that's what they want to do, I thought it's important to acknowledge and validate them and then open up possibilities. Mm. So after a while, just so I wouldn't get the two confused, I started to call mine possibility therapy because people would say, oh, you do solution focus. And I said, well, yeah, a lot of it's the same, but some of it's really different. I was influenced by Carl Rogers. So feelings are really important to me and acknowledging feelings. Steve wasn't much on feelings and he didn't orient to that very much. Now, a bunch of variations on solution focus have come. There's a lot more openness to this now, partly now that Steve and Inter are gone and they can't enforce the orthodoxy. There's evolution that can happen. Mm -hmm. And I've liked the evolution of solution focus. I don't think I have such a difference anymore. I mean, I've talked to you two and I've talked to the people at Brief in England and they're very close to the way I think mm -hmm. about doing it. I never use formula questions, so I never use the miracle question. I maybe use that once in my life. I have different ways of doing it. I often use stories to do the same thing that the questions or the scaling or other things that are done in solution-focused therapy. I just have other methods that I developed way before solution-focused was ever created. When you say you use stories, could you give some examples of that? Yeah. Let's say when someone comes in, instead of asking the miracle question, I might say, you know, I saw Viktor Frankl in the years before his death, and he told this story about how he was almost killed in the concentration camp, and the way he survived was he imagined surviving surviving and getting through the concentration camp experience and giving a lecture in post-war Vienna. And he was on the ground being beaten to death, almost dead. And the vision of the future pulled him up and he was able to walk and survive that day because he wanted to make that future mm. real. And so I would tell that story. It's a lot more detail. 
It takes me about five minutes to tell it, so I won't take the time. But I would tell that to a client. I say, so if we were to imagine a life in which things worked out and you weren't addicted or cutting yourself or depressed anymore and things were better, what would that life be like? What would you be doing in that life? And so I seed it with the story. And then they're much more likely to answer in a positive way to me because I've given them a template for a possibility. And many of them know Victor Frankl, they've read Man's Search for Meaning or they've heard of him. And so they're, oh, yes, I love that. I love Victor Frankl. So it kind of hooks them in emotionally and reframes before I even get an answer to the question. Hmm. I like to pre-frame things so that possibility shows up and it's more likely to show up. I do think I'm more of a possibility thinker, not so focused on solutions anymore. And, you know, I heard Evan George just say this this morning. I was watching a video of him and one of the MRI brief therapists, John Weakland, who was a good friend of mine, once told me, life is one damn thing after another. But for people that come into therapy, they get stuck and life becomes the same damn thing over and over. So our task is get them from the same damn thing over and over back to one damn thing after another. Mm. And it's to get them into possibilities again because they've become stuck and suffering because of the rigidities. And so sometimes I think all I want to do is open a possibility. I'm not even sure I want to create the solution. They can do that once they're unstuck. Mm. So I think much more possibilities these days mm. as my main metaphor for what I think about. Well, actually, as a bill, possibilities are so close. Yes, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My first email was possible at AOL.com. So oh, um, cool. I, I do like that. And I know you do too. Elsie. You yes. have that possibility. Yeah. And speaking of possibilities, you not only wrote more than 30 books, but you also are a musician and are recording in Nashville and brought a song for us. I did. I did. Yeah. Well, I went way past my dreams. I never imagined I would write a book. I never imagined I would be a speaker and I would travel all over the world. I never imagined I would co-create uh, an approach to psychotherapy. And then I learned how to do online. We've talked about this. And all of a sudden, when I didn't have to be there anymore, fly over to Europe and teach, I could do it all online. I had a lot more time than I imagined. The next thing that emerges, I played music since I was a teenager. And I love music and I like songwriting. And I decided to get serious about that. So yes, yeah, so a third of the month, I spend my time in Nashville, just like I was in psychotherapy. I've been mentored by great people like Melton Erickson, but in songwriting, people who are amazing. So... So one of those people is a man who's written 14 number one songs, 40 top 20 songs, and amazing songwriter and I became friends with him and his wife and his wife was really interested in psychology and she came to a workshop that I taught in Nashville and I said a phrase and the phrase was I have this kind of therapy that's a little different from solution focused and possibility therapy it's just called inclusive therapy where you allow opposites to exist at the same time like you can be depressed and hopeful you can want to kill yourself and you can want to live and so I said a phrase while I was teaching the workshop and she came up afterwards and said you know that phrase we should write a song about that and we should write it with my husband Gary who's this amazing songwriter they're both amazing songwriters so we sat down and wrote that song the next month I was in Nashville and uh, it's about allowing yourself to feel two different things at the same time and not have it be a conflict so it's called contradiction so here we go mm. I can't tell 
If I'm going crazy or if I'm all right, maybe it's a little of both. I'm glad you're gone. I wish I had you back. How come my train of thought keeps running on two tracks? You never even crossed my mind. I think about you all the time. I'm moving on. I never will get over you. I'm all messed up and I'm okay. I miss you every other day. Funny how two opposites can both be true. So I give myself permission to embrace the contradiction of love. A broken heart has battling emotions when it's pulled apart just makes room for more I'm just fine and I'm just falling to pieces so I'm learning how to be one great big dichotomy you never even cross my mind I think about you all the time I'm moving on I never will get over you I'm all messed up and I'm okay I miss you every other day Funny how two opposites can both be true So I give myself permission To embrace the contradiction of love One thing I've learned Since we lost each other When it comes to love it's one thing and another You never even cross my mind I think about you all the time I'm moving on I never will get over I'm all messed up and I'm okay I miss you every other day Funny how two opposites can both be true So I give myself permission you know, truth is stranger than fiction, so I give myself permission to embrace the contradiction of love. That's that. Wow. wow. I give myself permission to embrace the contradiction of love. Nothing to add here. <laughs> <laughs> That's written with Gary Burr and Georgia Middleman, who are terrific songwriters. If you want to look them up, they're amazing, and they have great music, and they have a group now called Middleman Burr. Thank you very much, Bill. Wow. Thank you. It's, so storytelling, it's, playing music to open up the land of possibilities. That's it. And we, the two of us, just danced, and we're in this land of possibilities <laughs> together, <laughs> thanks yeah. to your music. Oh, well, that's nice. And hearing this song and hearing you talk about your journey and therapy and also your life journey you shared here with us. It seems that you also use music to transport your messages and wow, what brought your passion for music and where do you see maybe also similarities between music and therapy? Well, when I was younger, I thought about being a musician, songwriter, and I thought, that's kind of selfish. It's all about me. I should become a psychotherapist and help other people. In recent years, I was thinking back and I was thinking, 
sometimes music just comforted me and made me think that someone knew what I was going through. I would hear a song that would articulate what I was feeling and my longings, and it made me feel less alone and more connected. And so I thought, wait a minute. And I was suicidal when I was younger, I mentioned, and this was in when I had records. I would pick up a needle on a record and play this phrase when I was very lonely and very shy. And the phrase was from an album that I had at the time. And the phrase was, let me reassure your soul that someone loves you. Let me reassure your soul that someone knows. It's by Ezra Mohawk, a very obscure singer-songwriter. And I would play that phrase over and over again. And it would make me think, maybe someday someone will love me and I will know someone and I'll be connected with someone. So maybe I shouldn't give up. Maybe there's a future for me. So it's very much like therapy. Two things. One is, I think what therapists sometimes do is we can articulate what people feel, but they sometimes can't put into words. Or we can validate or tell them that what they feel is acceptable, normal, okay, within the human realm. And the second thing is we give hope. Because when people come to us, sometimes their hope is diminished or sometimes gone. And we hold the hope for them. And so for me, that music was like a message from the future saying, there's hope. Mm. Don't give up. Mm. Please don't give up. There's someone out there that can understand you and know you and love you. And that for me was life-changing in that moment and helpful to me. And so years later, when I was thinking about music and I was thinking, I better change my mind about this. Music isn't so selfish. Mm. It touches other people in ways that sometimes rational, just conversation can't or explaining things to people. Music has rhythm and it has melody, but it also sometimes can say things that we know, but we don't know how to say and say, that's how I feel. Someone else feels like that. I'm not so alone. So for me, it was worthwhile. And this new dream appeared that I would be a professional songwriter, not a performing musician. I don't want to record my songs, although I have a bit, but I have other people record them and I'm attempting to get them recorded on people's records. So that's my big goal for the next part of my life. And it's gotten me more excited than I've been in years because at first writing was a challenge. At first speaking was a challenge. First being a therapist was a challenge. And then after a while, well, they weren't quite so challenging and hard for me. Songwriting is fun and hard. Mm. And speaking about hope, there are so many songs that have this turn in uh, the lyrics, like a good story. They kind of start in a sad way and then there is yes. this turn and there's hope in there. And yes. my dad is a musician and yes. he didn't talk too much about his life, his worries or sorrows. But then he went to his room and he played and he played and he played and he came out and he could see the transformation. Yes, it's amazing. So I understand in each of your shows, you give an assignment for people mm. or a suggestion, a possibility. They <laughs> could do something perhaps that could maybe enhance their lives sometime until they listen to your next podcast. Mm. So, well, I have an idea. Okay, that's good. That's yeah. good. So uh, maybe before we come to the okay, challenge good. of the week, Bill, when you look back at your journey as a solution-focused, a possibilities-focused practitioner, and there is one thing you really, really, really want to have people know, because this can make a difference for their lives, this can make a difference for their practice. What would that be today, right now? 
You know, I think it's more personal for me because I was depressed and as I said, suicidal. And then not that many years later, I was happy. I had people that loved me. I wasn't alone. And so for me, that made me what I like to joke, psychotically optimistic the rest of my life. That no matter how bad things look in the moment, that there's a possibility that things could be different in the next moment, in the next week, in the next month, in the next year. So don't be hypnotized by the problem because the problem is telling you it's all over. There's no hope for you. You're too damaged. You're too crazy. Nothing will work out for you. And if you listen to that and believe that that's the only outcome or possibility, it's so discouraging. And sometimes people kill themselves out of that. And I would just say, I've seen miracles. I've seen transformations. And no matter how bad it looks. So when people come in and they'd be really, really challenged in life, it never threw me because I'm like, I was way worse than you. And I'm really happy now. And I have people that love me and I have this meaningful life. I understand. I don't want to be flippant about it or take it lightly. It really, you're suffering so much now and it seems so hopeless, but I don't believe it is. I just don't believe it is. So I think just remember there's a bigger story. And someone said, if your story is not a good story, that just means you're in the middle of it. You haven't gotten to the next chapter yet. And I think a little like that with human beings. And I guess you said one thing, but there are really two things. Being a therapist has made me see that all the things I thought were evil or sick or shameful about myself, they're part of the human experience. I mean, don't do evil things to people, but the thoughts and feelings and impulses and fantasies you have, they're all well within the range of normal human experience. And after sitting with thousands of people in therapy, it's like, you know, someone will say, oh, I have this crazy thought and I just look at them and I want to say, yeah, you too? Yeah, I've had that one. (laughs) Or I've had 20 clients that have had that. That's within the realm of humans. It's not that bad. And so for me, it's just a deep, profound acceptance that we're all human and that there's nothing pathological about the struggles and the sadnesses and the joys and the fears that we have. It's just all part of the human experience and you can move through it and survive it and make a life of meaning and a good life. And combined with your song also reminds me that there are so many feelings sometimes. They can be here at the same time. So I can be crazy with someone and love him at the same time. I can be joyful and sad at the same time and just embracing what's here. Yeah. I was taught when I was in psychology, you can only have one feeling at a time. It was reciprocal inhibition. If you were happy, you couldn't be sad. And I'm like, no, I've been happy and sad at moments. And it's okay. You don't have to choose. And obviously, if you have an influence, it'd be nice to be happy. And life is filled with sadness and life is filled with joy. And sometimes at the same moment. I just had a relative die and, you know, she was 99 years old. So it was a relief because she'd been suffering, but it was sad that she was gone in a certain way. So I was happy and sad. Yes, Mm. exactly. Nice. And being part of a bigger story, you've been part of a bigger story your whole life. And one of the stories that we were so fascinated and I think that might be good advice for people who see someone and they want to become gardeners of them <laughs> to learn yeah. from this story. Yeah, how you became, be my gardener, yes. That's right. <laughs> I became gardener of Milton Erickson. It's such a lovely story and would love to hear that. 
Wow. I had Matt Meldarkson when I was in university and I had a job because I had to work. Unlike Europe, you have to pay for college here. I was a work study student and I worked at the art gallery. I met Dr. Erickson. So I didn't know who he was, but I began to read about him. And a few years later, then I was in graduate school becoming a psychotherapist. And I had worked as a gardener between undergrad and graduate school. And I went to a workshop with the people who started neurolinguistic programming, Bandler and Grinder. And they said, you live right near Melton Erickson, how come you haven't gone to study with him? And I said, I have no money. I was like, yeah, why don't you go visit Nelson Mandela? I mean, I just, to me, he was the hero of my life. I would never contact somebody like that and bother them. They said, no, he really loves students. You know, go contact him. You live right near him. I worked up my courage. I couldn't call. He was in the phone book. I could have called him, but I was way too shy for that. I wrote him a letter saying, I love your work. I wrote it to him and his wife, actually, Mrs. Erickson. She was a psychologist as well. He was a psychiatrist and psychologist. And so I said, I admire your work. I would really love to meet you. I have no money. I'm in graduate school. I could be your gardener because I know how to do that. And I could write a story about you for a magazine. I think your life is fascinating. And put my address and phone number at the bottom of the letter. And I sent it off. And when I came back from a weekend trip, my roommate, who had heard me talk about the great Milton Erickson many times, he said, the weirdest guy is calling every morning when you've been gone. And he's asking for the O'Hanlon Gardenings. He's just confusing. And I said, I think that's Dr. Erickson. I mean, confusing. <laughs> that's his specialty. I think that's it. So the next morning, my roommate was always up before I was. I slept late. And the phone rings and he comes into my room. So I get up and I get on the phone. And I say, hi, this is Bill O'Hanlon. He said, O'Hanlon Gardening Service. And I said, this is Bill O'Hanlon. And he said, don't you think you ought to survey the territory before you decide to take the job? <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm totally confused. I don't know what we're talking about. But I said, yes. He said, well, why don't you come out to see me then? And could you come a Tuesday at 10 o'clock? I had a class in graduate school, but yes, of course I can come. I will skip my class. And I got myself out there and I met him and he took me out to the garden and I became his gardener. And then after three weeks of gardening, his wife came out with the appointment book and said, Milton, the boy wants to learn hypnosis and psychotherapy. Let's have him sit in on some sessions. And I was like, thank you, Mrs. Harrison, because I'm way too shy. He wanted me out there in the garden every day. He loved the garden. He loved nature and he loved the outdoors. And because he was in a wheelchair, he couldn't do gardening anymore. And he was sort of living vicariously through me. And I was his student and his gardener for the better part of a year. And uh, he died soon after that. He was in his late 70s and he had a lot of physical illnesses, but he was alive. He was the most alive person that I'd seen, you know, and especially since he was in his late 70s, I was like, he's way more alive than I am. And he's got all these physical problems. He's in a wheelchair. He's had all this pain that he's suffering. He just looked like the next moment was full of possibilities and somebody was going to do something amazing or he was going to see something or hear something amazing at every moment, which was quite disconcerting actually, because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it's not going to be that great. But he looked at me like I was going to say something brilliant or life-changing. I was always on edge when I was with him. It changed my life, those encounters with him. And when he told me that African violence story, which I was out in the garden with him, it just changed the course of my therapy and my life. Mm. I became much more interested in what worked. And that has made all the difference. And you're in the same club. 
And if you want to become our gardeners, it's much easier. Just call us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Also, yeah, we don't even and, have a phone number, I think, right now. So. And you have no garden. You're, in, you're traveling around the, the world. The world is our garden, you know, in yeah, the land the of possibilities. Well, you'll be settled down someday and they can come and fix your garden. That'll be great. <laughs> all your wisdom. Well, so let's come to the challenge of the week. All right. You know, I sang you that song, which was Contradictions. And one of the things I have learned over the years is it's this and that. And our language, at least in English, and I'm sure it's true in the languages that you speak, has this but that or this or that. The challenge, I would say, just to try it out, catch yourself every time you say something that contradicts what you just did and instead put the word and in. So, oh, I'm tired, but I have to get up and take care of my four-year-old. Oh, I'm tired and I'm going to get up and take care of my four-year-old. Mm -hmm. Or I'm really sad and like you said, healthy and I'm happy. So this, but this, or this, or this, substitute this and this. And just find out as a week, as an experiment, how that shifts your feelings about things to use the word and. I thought about writing a book once and the book was just going to be called and. There was a silly movie, an American actor, Jim Carrey, he can't lie anymore. He has to tell the truth and all sorts of funny things because he's a chronic liar. All of funny things happen. I would say, I would love to see the movie where you couldn't say but and you couldn't say or. You could only say and for a week and then find out how that shifted your experience. It would be kind of fun. Wow. And please let us know how this challenge works for you. So come and comment on our website. Let us know what inspired you with our podcast with Bill. Let us know how Bill inspires you and let us know how the challenge works. Please come and comment on our website on www.sfontour podcast and then go to episode number 28. <laughs> well, and so you should always tune into the podcast to see what new t-shirts that Dominic is wearing. And I wore mine in honor because I talk so much, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's blah, blah, blah. And so you can see what t-shirt he's wearing in any podcast episode. It's exciting to see the new t-shirts. <laughs> well, you're starting a new trend here, Bill. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We'll have the t-shirt of the podcast. You know, it's been such a delight to get to know you two. You have a verve and an energy that is really delightful. And uh, I appreciate being invited. And you talked about energy. I love sharing the energy. It's amazing how it can even come across over the web and through the recording devices that we have and the web devices that we have. The energy and you're sharing that energy with people all over the world. So I know you're on a grand adventure. So have fun on the rest of your grand adventure. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Bill. And talking about the energy, which even can come across media and internet. You have several online programs, so... Yeah, it's best probably, they change all the time and I don't, I only advertise them to people who sign up to find out about them. So you can get on my mailing list on my website, which is billohanlon.com, B-I-L-L-O-H-A-N-L-O-N.com. You can just sign up for my general mailing list where I have a set of handouts about solution-oriented therapy and uh, bibliography and stuff like that, as well as my favorite book, which I give away. It's called A Lazy Man's Guide to Success. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can get those and then you'll be on my mailing list. I'll let you know if I have any programs. I do a program on solution-oriented probably every year, hypnosis. I do a program on Ericksonian hypnosis. And then I do a program helping therapists and coaches if they want to go broader and be speakers and writers. I've coached about 300 books into existence or create a coaching practice or do online courses and marketing. So I do a program like that. It's an 
an ongoing membership site. So I'll let you know about that when it comes around. Yeah, and we are happy to put that in the resource section of our website. So you will find all the information about Bill and his newsletter and everything on our website in the resource section again on www.sfontour.com slash Simply Focus Podcast and then go to episode number 28. And if you have not yet done, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry or soon on Spotify. And Bill, do you have another song for us? Yeah, I mentioned I was very shy when I was younger. And I used to be way too shy to talk to a woman. But I'd fall in love every week. <laughs> so I was remembering this and I wrote this song, co-wrote this song. It's called Somebody to Someone. I see that look in your eyes. I know you have heartaches like mine. It's hard to keep yourself open. Let yourself go there again. I wanna be somebody to someone. I wanna be somebody to someone. Someone like you It's so hard to put into words The longing I feel Behind the hurt Maybe the next time I see you I'll have the courage to say I wanna be somebody Someone I wanna be somebody Someone Someone like you There's always a chance you'll be broken but with you, I'm willing to try. I wanna be somebody to someone. I wanna be somebody to someone. Someone like you. Someone like you 
someone like you. Aren't you two the little lovebirds? That's so sweet. <laughs> That's your song. Oh, thank you very much for this experience. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you again in person sometimes rather than just cyber. Yes. Yeah, we hope so too. So. And to see your charming daughter who's going to be a musician, I predict. <laughs> <laughs> That would be cool. So Bill and Bibiana played ukulele before. We started the podcast. So. <laughs> and she's got my little ukulele guitar that she carries around. Yes, with your music. And actually, this song I know is on your ukulele yes. as well. And I love it. So we love to listen to Bill's music in our RV when driving. And it's just lovely to have you with us with your music. Oh, and thanks. thank you very much for your time, for being here with us. And have a lovely week ahead. Safe travels. And when you finally settle again I hope to see you yeah so thank you Bill and have a great week bye 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 bye